Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Connect with Carrie through her candid, often funny, and always informative weekly blog. And now it's time to get all up in your business with Carrie McCoy. My guest today, Arkansas's first lady, Mrs. Susan Hutchinson, is a school teacher by trade a piano player by hobby, and an advocate for those without a voice, the children of Arkansas. Before we start, I want to let you know, if you miss any part of today's show or want to hear it again or want to share it, there's a way, and Gray will tell you how. Listen to all UIYB past and present interviews by going to flagandbanner.com and clicking on Radio Show, or subscribe to our podcast wherever you like to listen by searching Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Thank you again, Gray. Arkansas's first lady, Miss Susan Hutchinson, was born in Atlanta, Georgia, the second of seven children. At a young age, she was smart and ambitious, having graduated valedictorian of her high school and having lofty goals of one day becoming a doctor. After attending college, Bob Jones University in South Carolina, Susan met a man from Arkansas, an ambitious man named Asa Hutchinson. After graduating college and before moving to Arkansas and marrying Asa, she taught science and math at a high school in Memphis, Tennessee. Mrs. Hutchinson has been a lifelong voice and advocate for children. Today, she is working hard to establish more children's advocacy centers throughout Arkansas. In addition, the First Lady plays piano and sees the arts as a brain builders for our children. She believes all students should have at least one year of exposure to the arts. It is a pleasure and a privilege to welcome to the table the talented and passionate First Lady of Arkansas, Mrs. Susan Hutchinson. Oh, thank you, Carrie. I appreciate that. You're so welcome. You say it so well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, you. Thank you so much for coming on. You and I met uh, this year, earlier this year, and yeah. I said, you've got to come on the radio with me. You're just charismatic, and I love being around <laughs> you. you. You've got a great uh, high energy. Uh, but you like to say, and I quote, I read this. You said this. I am about as blue collar as it gets. Yes. What does that mean? I didn't tell my parents that Asa was involved in politics for quite a few years. My experience with blue collar, whole family, Mm -hmm. both sides, blue collar, was um, an immediate assumption that politicians are uppity, think they're smarter or better than they are because they're not in politics. They're not out campaigning for somebody they never have they've never met a politician i'd never met a politician till we moved to northwest arkansas and john paul hammerschmidt was in town and they said susan you drive him to the airport strip and wow you know i met him um but hard working six days a week working um and dad sold um tires Really? Off the back of the truck. And uh, the more tires he sold, the more he made. He, mm-hmm. he, they were by consignment. So uh, long hours. He'd leave before we did for school. And, and tires come are home heavy. After and tires are heavy. Tires are heavy work. and they're dusty and it all gets into your skin. It gets into your scalp. It's under your fingernails. I bet he had great arms, though. 
from lifting tires all yeah day long. he was he was strong um and used that lava soap steam shower on and on and on it's just hard work so your family had a little bit of a distrust towards politicians because they didn't know one well they didn't know them and what they knew about them was what they read about um, newspapers mm-hmm. and you only had the three tv stations mm-hmm. and your father sold tires for a living what'd your mother yeah. do mom was a full-time um, homemaker but um, she started work when she was 14 great ethics hard working she had to do that to help support her widowed mother um, her two older brothers had uh, quit school when their father was run down by a drunk driver mm. uh, and she was only nine and she was the youngest of the four at home and uh, so the brothers immediately quit school and they sold newspapers <laughs> that there was newsboys and whatever other little odds in things they could do to get a little money so they probably didn't get the a high early school degree. 30s they probably didn't get a high school degree they did not my mom didn't get past eighth grade Mm-hmm. She went to work. Uh, her older sister had already been starting work at uh, fourteen, and you're talking twenty dollars a week. And your so your mother had seven children. Are mm-hmm. they all as ambitious as you? In different ways. Um, there's a little bit of a business gene, I would say, that's in the family. So they've pretty much worked for themselves or worked with dad. He started a little company. He moved us out of Atlanta. The summer I graduated from, from high, high school, school and finished raising uh, my younger brothers and sisters out there. It's halfway between Atlanta and uh, Athens. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to, I don't know how, if you were living in the country with your parents, you decided I'm going to grow up one day and be a doctor because I read where you had ambitions to be a doctor. You graduated valedictorian of your class. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I made straight A's. <laughs> so you, if people said, well, you know, what's your best subject? It's like, well, I don't really have a hard subject. Uh, I just I just enjoyed everything. I enjoyed learning, and I memorized a lot, and I was playing piano. Mom insisted on lessons at, um, when I was in third grade, eight years old. Um, sacrificed to do that. Um, we didn't go out to eat. Um, if if we did happen to go out to eat, it would be a like a drive-in with car hops, the varsity in yeah. downtown Atlanta. But that stopped after the third kid. I mean, we didn't do that anymore. So your mother must have really believed in music because you are ta- you're describing a family that doesn't have a lot of money, and yet they put money up for a piano lessons for you. Yeah, mom insisted on that, and uh, you know, why, why a dollar is that? I asked her that because. It was a sacrifice, and I knew it. And um, buying an old piano, you know, yeah, uh, that was hard. The first one, the pedals didn't work, and half, and some of the keys stuck. It, it was hard uh, to learn to play on it. But did all your sisters did. play? Um, the four of us took piano lessons, but when we we moved outside of Atlanta, Mom had a hard time finding somebody else. So I don't know that the younger ones actually played an instrument i would have felt like that was a lot of responsibility for my parents to make those kind of sacrifices to make me so that i could play take lessons yeah. and then i would be like i would feel so obligated to practice and try to do good right and then you got the music sheets mm-hmm. sheet music mm-hmm. and the books and all that so we we handed them down <laughs> as mm-hmm. much as possible in that but i i did after i was grown and married i asked her how come she said that um growing up she had this dream 
that one day she would be able to play the piano and that she would be sitting at a huge black grand piano and playing like Liberace mm. with the candelabras and everything. And it's just her private little dream. And so she wanted us to have a possibility of uh, learning the piano. So through the years, I uh, played at church and helped out Are you good? in different little... You still play? Yeah. I still play, but I'm not well-practiced. Mm, you've got so to practice. Y- you have to practice and keep it all nimble and you moving sure along. But I now I play for myself. But we were in small churches um, pretty much all through the early years of the marriage, and I was the volunteer pianist. And, and I have great memories. Asa would... Um, work with the youth and he was doing that even his first year of uh, law school going back and working with the youth all the way from Fayetteville to Gravit which is a solid hours drive Mm. in in that day and so he was rather excited I knew how to play the piano so I would play the piano while he led in little choruses and uh, he plays trumpet and cornet he does Mm -hmm. so y'all are a little band do your children play (laughs) well I had all of them learn Three of them learned piano, and the and uh, the boys all learned a a horn. Uh, two of them learned trombone, and the one learned trumpet. So, do you and y'all get together? Do y'all play music? It it that would take something for them <laughs> to get together. I'm not sure they all kept the trombone, but um, it was important. And I've learned since then that learning music early on, or or at any point in your life, is something about well, there's the listening to music, to good music that does great things for your brain and actually increases your intelligence and actually stimulates your neurons to grow and and connect left brain, right brain. Like 66% of your surgeons are musicians. What? Yeah, they're musicians. Because it, especially for men, they're... Um, think in mono they they compartmentalize and they do that naturally Mm -hmm. because the left brain and the right brain is not as well connected as it is in the female brain it's totally connected Mm. so that's the reason we can multitask so we listen in stereo so that's how you can be holding a crying baby and frying the potatoes (laughs) talking on the phone and telling the kids don't slam the door (laughs) yeah we can do all that guys it's like just don't bother me. I'm I'm trying to do this. How many times have we heard that? So it's all natural. So uh, it does stimulate the brain. And if you're participating in the music and making the music or clapping with the music or walking with the music or banging on something with the music, that you're part of it, it does even more. And it helps people with dementia. Um, it, really? Mm-hmm. But besides, even still, at my age, if I listen to music, which I do all the time, oh, they perform much. You perform much better, whatever level you I are agree. with the d- digression of the disease. It helps you to do better than you have been doing. Yeah, and uh, okay, and th- there's other simple little things you can do too. But the music is just besides being therapeutic and making mm-hmm. you feel better mm-hmm. or helping you to express yourself. Melancholies, please. You all need to learn an instrument. Um, to express yourself and your your different moods, I'm more melancholy than not. And you don't it, seem it, like it. it <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Um, you really have to um, express yourself, and you don't always want to put it in words. So I would just play different kinds of music 
to express my romantic side or or just energy side or mm-hmm. upsetness or your parents still crying alive? side. Sadly, no. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Up in Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Arkansas's First Lady, mm-hmm. Mrs. Susan Hutchinson, wife, of course, to Governor Asa Hutchinson. Her mother believed in piano lessons and how she wanted to have her dream uh, played out in her children, and she so she provided all these opportunities for Susan, which is really sweet. Um, I did then, get close to that dream for her. You did? What would you do? I got to the mansion, and I was approached to collaborate with um, maestro Philip Mann to do a little concert on the grounds with the symphony and for me to play the piano with them. How scary was that? That was scary. I kept trying. No, it's more of a hobby. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not a Tatiana. Did you do it um, or no? I did. You did. I did it, and um, I did it for mom. Oh, I love that. Story. That's the only reason I did it. I did it for mom. I knew. Say a little prayer to her and give her a little yeah. point up to her. Yeah, that's yeah. sweet. Exactly. Philip Mann is from the Arkansas Symphony, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, uh, no longer there, mm-hmm. and uh, we've lost him to Texas. Hate that. And uh, I do too. And uh, Texarkana, it was just amazing because we um, got back to Little Rock um, about a year or so. Uh, well, David Itkin was still here, and um, heard that music. And then they went into the search, and then Philip came. So we were there before yeah. Philip Man, and it was just everything you would dream of the expansion philip was awesome um, and the robinson center mm-hmm. the um, bond issue passed and we got all that and, and of course the, com- the performing arts are even better than ever they're not just the symphony it mm-hmm. sounds great mm-hmm. seating's great the venue's great so many more things can happen there now and much more easily um it's just fantastic the youth orchestra mm-hmm. expanding elsewhere in the state all the little river rhapsodies and the little smaller groupings across the city to trying to get live music there's nothing like that live music and you just feel it and you're with it and it mm-hmm. and of course you know being blue collar mm-hmm. they had a program though in the public schools uh, that they would bus us oh, into really? downtown atlanta where the circus performed <laughs> and uh have the orchestra there for us and um i just fell in love with it mm-hmm. with the symphony and peter and the wolf and all these different we had christina little john had. on about six mm-hmm. months ago and she could not say enough great things about maestro man i i don't know how we'll ever get somebody those like those two him. are a powerful team yeah it was, it was powerful mm-hmm. it was very powerful team so you met ace in college Yes. And love at first sight? I was taken with him. Mm-hmm. He great smile, and he was not deterred with the usual romantic uh, busting answers what that I gave. What do you I mean gave. by that? Guys don't like to date smart girls. Oh, that's true. They're very intimidated. And I was like, man up. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Sooner or later, you're going to find out. So I got tired. Um, nobody in high school asked me out. Really? A couple of guys at church. That, yeah. Did you know he was going to be a politician? Was he already talking oh, about that? Oh, no. What did he want to be? What well, on our second date, he told me he had decided that, um, well, he hadn't quite decided. He knew he wasn't going to be an accountant. He'd done well 
with his accounting degree, his grades and everything. Um, but he had decided he wasn't going to do that. But through debate, he had to do research. And we were both in debate. That's significant. There's reason I mentioned mm-hmm. that. <laughs> um, but he had decided not the accounting. So he told me on that second date he didn't know if God wanted him to be a lawyer or a preacher. <laughs> So, so I didn't tell him that at all. Y'all being on the debate team was important. Why was that important? Well, our paths did not cross. I'd never seen him before until he sat across the evening dinner table from me six weeks from graduation, our last semester, our last year. Never seen him before. I'd heard his name, I knew he was in debate. Because I happened to be the secretary of the Intramural Debate Association on campus. We didn't debate other college students. We debated amongst ourselves. And each one of the men's groups, each one of the girls' groups Mm -hmm. had to field a team for at least three debates. Mm -hmm. And I was the secretary, so I knew the names on paper. And I knew when all the debates would happen and everything. So we weren't having classes anymore. Um together we wouldn't have any kind of common classes all of his would be on one side of the campus with the business and mine was all in this other building that was all about the sciences very little so crossover just on ended campus up sitting, sitting with each other at dinner uh no that's not allowed oh. at campus you had assigned seats oh. but there was an open seat at my table and he had to take it because they had shut down his table where his assignment was so out of 3,000 students, he happened to sit across the table. And you're six wa- weeks away from graduating. 12 weeks away from, 12 graduation, weeks from graduation. And, and you're thinking, darn. He's peppering me with all these questions. So, you know, like, what's your goal this semester, your last semester? You know, straight A's. Oh, what are you majoring in? A biology, minoring in chemistry. But he just kept smiling and asking me more questions. He wasn't put off by it. He wasn't put off by it at all. And I, uh, I was really taken with that. Uh, I didn't smile too big, though. And then I, I was just I was just done with trying to find Mr. Perfect. Yeah. It just wasn't happening, even in a fine institution as that. Um, so he didn't follow up with, let me walk you back to the dorm or anything. And I think, this is crazy. And so... How'd you get together? Well, um, one of the other people that had to sit at my table knew him. And so I asked him, what's with him? He didn't ask me to tell me what's going on. And he said, well, he's actually dating somebody else. Okay, well, what's she like? Well, you know. And um, it just went on from there. So every night I was asking him more and more about Asa and get his background and and all and he said well everybody likes him he's been elected twice as president to his men's group um he works hard he has a job on campus to it's a work loan scholarship they would call it well what does he do well he's um in charge of the cleanup crew they work late hours and they're cleaning up the buildings the restrooms the floors classrooms okay well he's a hard worker very and he's not um you know that kind of work is not mm-hmm. too uh it's not too egotistical he's no humble. he's not he's humble he's not egotistical at all um oh he plays soccer he's athletic 
so how did he, he finally called you? He finally broke up with his girlfriend and called you, I guess? No, that didn't happen either. This is the longest story I've ever been in. <laughs> <laughs> we can make a movie out of this, Carrie. So anyway, he, no contact or anything, and it was very restricted on the campus at the time how you could contact with each other. Remember, this is before cell phones, much less car phones. Yeah. Uh, there weren't any phones in our rooms. It was just public phones, and they wouldn't cross campus. Yeah. Boys, girls, yeah. and it wouldn't do that. So I said, this is crazy, and I researched that other girl. And I said, she's not for him, not for him. Not She's not interested in the same things I'm finding out that he's interested in. That I'm also interested in. Well, you were. She was doing the research. We didn't even Science. have the internet back then. No, yes. yeah. no. I, I just asked any and everybody mm-hmm. uh, who so knew how, him. So you, you, I looked at the schedule of the debates. Oh, you and showed when they up for were. the debates. So I showed up for his debates. Uh, that's why debates are important. That's why debates are important. <laughs> <laughs> that took us a long time to get there, and I love that story. Mm, but he actually wrote me a goodbye letter that summer. Oh, he did? And then you went to Memphis. That's the reason I went to Memphis. Why? To cut the distance between Atlanta and Fayetteville. Oh. So y'all. Had so a long then I wrote him a letter that, um, you know, Lord's been working in my life, and I'm in Memphis now, and I'm teaching in this Christian school, and you're welcome to come see. Me. And he did, and y'all started a long. He said he would, but a month, six weeks later, he still hadn't done it. This is another long story, and somebody intervened and called him up and put me on the phone, and. I'm shaking in my boots that I'm going to scare him off. Oh yeah! And he said, "No, I'll be there next weekend. I'll be Golly, fine." Golly, talk about I talk about segmented brains. Asa, you just have to hit him over the head. I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. Well, he he well he lit up like a Christmas tree when I that first appearance I made at the debate because you know there were only six people that needed to be there: mm-hmm. the four debaters, the timekeeper, and the uh, faculty judge. Mm-hmm. Nobody else had to be there, so nobody else was there. It, w- it was not a spectator sport. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Debate usually isn't. Well, it was for you. <laughs> it was for me, and uh, I highly recommend it um, for everybody to learn how to debate and oh, participate know. in a People few little classroom the, debates. Yeah, yeah it's, it's Well, it it's really helps you. you to see both sides of an issue Makes and you make analytical. your both case. Very, very analytical. Mm-hmm. And the researching and the debate for ASA – that's the reason he was looking at being a lawyer was through debate. He had researched and had seen the laws and, and so forth. And this is really good. So that's the reason he was torn between the two. So you moved to Arkansas after you got married? When you got married? Yeah, after we got married. The honeymoon was uh, driving in a non-air-conditioned car, standard, all the way, from, which I didn't know how to drive, all the way from uh, Atlanta all the way up to Fayetteville. That, that was the honeymoon. honeymoon. You're not really, in August. If you can't drive a standard, you're not really blue collar. Well, I, I learned to, to drive the standard on the hills of Fayetteville. There you go. You like? Um, did you like living in Fayetteville? It, it was fun, but I had to pray a lot. Why? A lot of red lights are at the top of the hill. Oh, and you're in a standard. And I'm in a standard. <laughs> and and if you roll backwards an inch, I thought it was at least a foot, and I was gonna 
Somebody, <laughs> I was going to rear in somebody from the front. <laughs> somebody need to teach you how to use the emergency brakes. You can rev the gas and pull the emergency brake. Well, I, I learned how to do that mm-hmm. soft thing with the gas yeah. and the clutch mm-hmm. and everything. I only burned out one clutch that first year. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, when did he decide, was it in favor that he decided he's going to run for office and be a politician? Uh, no, we'd already moved um, to, to Bentonville by then. He graduated in two and a half years. Mm. from law school so we moved to bentonville early and he was uh apprenticing with um judge Mm -hmm. jim Mm -hmm. hendron whose brother had married asa's sister so we weren't quite relatives and um bought a simple house and had a baby you know within months of his graduation from without insurance uh, within a few months of his graduation from law school and the baby wasn't even a year old, and the first one, and he's saying, I'm joining the Republican Party, and then they had changed the Constitution on how our quorum courts were set up and how many uh, justices of peace you had, because before, I mean, you could have 100-plus justices of the peace, mm-hmm. and that was supposed to be your governing body and all that stuff. So he said he's going to run. I said, why are you going to do that? He said, well, it's new, and... They need people to run. It's, it's a new system. Okay. So he ran and then uh, uh, was not successful. And then two years later, he ran for prosecuting attorney. It was an open seat. What did you think about him running for office? Were you upset with him? No. It was just he was always doing it for the right reason. You weren't like, honey, honey, no, no. We've got no. babies. No. My mother said no, no politicians. We had just about paid out that baby. <laughs> paid off <laughs> yeah. yeah it was like 30 dollars a month mm-hmm. paying the bill so you were okay without with insurance that. and then when he decides to run for governor and he's like we're gonna move oh that's, there's a whole bunch of other runs before then so in the 70s it was uh quorum court and prosecuting attorney locally mm-hmm. and then um 86 was u.s senate mm-hmm. and dale bumper seat and then uh 90 was attorney general it was open seat and then he led the state party uh, for five years, and Huckabee was elected during that time, the, the big change-up. And then he ran for, in 96, he ran for Congress and won that and won re-election three times. And uh, then Bush asked him in the middle of the third term is to leave that seat, resign that seat, and move over and head up DEA. And then... He was on that job for a month when 9-11 happened. Oh, I forgot about that. a year and a half later, they had decided and had passed legislation to start up Homeland Security. So President George W. asked Asa to um, pass a baton on the DEA administrator and move over to Homeland Security and be third in line to lead it. Uh, That's the reason they call him the first undersecretary so you had the secretary you had the deputy and then you had asa Mm -hmm. was third in charge and uh, so putting that all together and he absorbed 22 agencies in whole or in part did you ever see him it was difficult how old were the kids um the kids were all grown two were married uh one was out on his own he just graduated from college and the youngest one had just graduated from high school and was up at Georgetown. So, were you living in Washington D.C.? 
I never lived in Washington, D.C. I'd go up there and visit him. Our daughter followed him up and lived with him mm-hmm. when he got elected to Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a few months later, she finished up her paralegal degree at uh, West Ark, now mm-hmm. UFAS. And so she went up there to work, and she lived with him. So she socialized with him and made sure he got mm-hmm. out and everything. And then made I would sure come he got up. Out. Dad, yeah. you got to get out and do something. But, well, well, she wanted to go to these things, and he wasn't going to them. And so mm-hmm. she would she would look and see at these invitations. And so she would say, I'm going, we're going, Dad. Let me tell everybody that you're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. And I'm speaking today with Arkansas's First Lady, Miss Susan, Mrs. Susan Hutchinson, wife, of course, of Governor Asa Hutchinson. Did you miss not teaching school? I did. And why I did you not it. become a doctor? What happened? You just well, decided it was too hard, too many schools, too many, too much. No, I, when I met Asa, I had already been accepted at Clemson University for a microbiology master's degree mm. yes. mm-hmm. at Clemson, <laughs> and um, and I kept pushing on that door and trying to get the funding and uh, trying to get lodging and trying to get communication going and i was calling them and all this and they said well we'll just work that all out when you get here and all this stuff and in the meantime asa wrote me that second letter Uh that summer saying he's not coming back to south carolina for his law degree at because we said well we'll keep dating you know because he hadn't told me he liked me well you don't even know and i had 12 weeks oh or not well, even six. six. We only really, dated for six, six weeks. Yeah. So it's still early. I mean, he on. asked me out April 11th, and we're graduating, you know, mid May. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there was no time. So you were probably praying about it and oh, yeah. just got this. Oh, I knew I was in love with him. Mm-hmm. And, thought, and, I, and I couldn't tell him that I even liked him because he's got to say it first. That's you know. the rule. Well, I, I didn't. He'd already been burned those by are the, one Georgia those girl. Are, oh, yeah. Those so. are the rules of our generation. You well, don't call them and you don't well, say it first. Well, if if that's the way the guy's operating, <laughs> that's the way the girl's got to operate, mm-hmm. you know. So you kind of have to fine tune that. So it it just it wasn't it, just, it, it wasn't was, working it was out. And then he's right. It was. And he, then he wrote me the letter. He's not coming back. And I said, oh, no, because I'm telling myself I'm marrying you and I'm making a family with you. Mm-hmm. And so I prayed about it, and God reminded me that I had been offered that teaching job in Memphis, and somehow I'd kept the contact information, and mm-hmm. I called them, and they still wanted me, and so I went. So let's talk about your advocacy for children, because yes. you, because when I saw you the last time and said, you've got to come on the radio with me, and you said, oh, please, I want to talk about advocacy for children. Yes. Um, there are 16 nonprofit children's advocacy. 17. Oh, you've you founded another. We, we've got another, Batesville, the latest. Um, we've added Russellville and um, El Dorado. What are the biggest challenges? Money and when cooperation. Tr- with the, from uh, who? From the parents? Well, we mostly get cooperation with the parents uh, to bring the children back for uh, counseling. Um, the money, the funding, and the cooperation with everybody else and everybody else on the multidisciplinary team is from the government the agencies the investigators the prosecutors big i need their cooperation do you not have it she smiles she's smiling not 100 percent. not gonna say not 100 so dhs that you work with uh yeah they're on the team dhs has their uh crimes against children uh, well, the Crimes Against Children Division is state police. They investigate. And then within DHS, you have 
a, a division that also investigates. They usually don't investigate the same, but depends on how whoever got pulled into it. But they're all part of the multidisciplinary team as well as your prosecutor or anybody else in government who is supposed to be helping this child, this victim. And then it's us, the nonprofit, the 501c3. Which is called the Children's Advocacy Center? Right. They're called Children's Advocacy Centers. In some places in the law, they're referred to as the Child Safety Center. Um, We're a safe place for the kids to tell all. Yeah, that's important. And they won't be hurt. Uh, They won't be intimidated. Uh, They're not in a jail looking at people in scary uniforms with badges and guns um we're we are not decision makers as to their future or how they're being handled we're there strictly for the child to find out what all's been going on and we don't do an interrogation it's an interview and we call it a forensic interview because we are looking for details but we don't have this litany of questions like an interrogation it's a conversation and we know how to talk to children we know age appropriate things to say to them what their vocabulary is what the meaning of everyday common words are to them at their development level i mean simple words like hard and soft do not mean the same thing to a four-year-old that it does to a nine-year-old really a four-year-old is going by texture not firmness. Oh, really? Yes. They're going by text. I did not know this. One of the yeah. forensic interviewers told me this. I was like, oh, my God. There's so many words out there. Well, agents don't have time to know all this and how old the kids are. And policemen, when they're not really policemen, but they're trained out of the um, state police. They're a division of the state police, but they are not um, police officers. So if I am a neighbor... And I know that my next door neighbor is abusing the child because I can see it on the child's face because you can see children in their faces. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just so open and honest about everything. You can see in their face that they're scared or there's something. What, what would I do to well, help you, the child? You can call the local police right away uh, if you're thinking they're in immediate danger. I would suggest that um, eventually you'll, uh, the hotline would be called. Um, what's, and, the, who, what's the hotline? Well, the simple way to remember it, and this was one of the things the state police agreed to change, was to make it easier for the general public, is to remember 1-844-SAVE-A-CHILD. Well, that's, that's the hotline. 1-844-SAVE-A-CHILD. Um, right. It, just spell that out. It's a few extra letters. Don't worry about it. It will It roll. is an extra. It, yeah. It's okay. a couple extra letters. I was about to say, that's too many. It's too many, but it, it's fine. It'll roll over to the official number. It'll still go to the same um, operator pool, uh-huh. and um, they, they're all there together in this room, and they have supervisors, and they take the information. While you're on hold, which could be for 30 minutes. Um, which There's that many people calling in? That's that many people calling in and that few operators that we funded. We just got extra funding through a TANF um, a grant for there to be more operators. And I think we're up to four more operators to answer, and it's 24-7. And it's statewide. Statewide, that number it, works statewide. Is it a free phone call? It's a free phone call, and they take the information. What you know, while you're on hold, 
you'll be told the information that's needed. Oh. Because you've got to have names, you have to have addresses, whatever particulars you might know, so that they know who it is you are really talking about, and they keep a record of that so they can cross-reference it uh, in case they get other calls on it, depending upon what you tell them what's going on so before you they call, will uh, um, send out an investigator or not or they'll cross-reference it and see whatever else has come in on so it. so before you call eight four save four, a child eight four four save a child you need to get all this your information on a piece of paper there the address child's name probably the age right particulars um you know who they're living with it, you mm-hmm. know just whatever it is that you know so they can identify mm-hmm. who it is that you're talking about because if they're going to send an investigator out to look the situation over and it'll be dhs that comes out the hotline most likely would send out police division from the oh. state police oh the state well that's so scary. when i say state police it's not going to be uniformed oh, officer with a gun yeah. and a badge i yeah. mean they'll have official documentation as to who they are um, and they'll go in and see what information they can gather about that. Because the children are scared to death of doing anything, no matter what their parents do to them, if it is a parent. They still love them. And they're well, usually frightened a little bit about getting their parent in trouble, so they won't confess or tell anybody. There's all kinds of reasons that kids don't tell. Some people have been known to go to their grave without telling. Mm-hmm. I know of a case in point where mom did. She actually committed suicide. And this is after her um, underage daughter had told her that the grandfather, her mother's father, had violated her. And her mother and her dad wouldn't believe her. And it just kept on that way. And finally she recanted. But her grandmother was actually in on it. And her mom was always suffering depression. And eventually she killed herself. Stephanie is the girl's name, and she um, got to visiting more and more with her dad's side of the um, family and for some reason confided in her aunt. And her aunt said, well, we got to do something about this. So they had an intervention. The grandfather is a preacher. Oh. Okay? So they have an intervention. You can't be doing this. You need help. You need to go to counseling. It's got to stop. So that's what happened. And this is in the state of Georgia, and uh, went to the counseling counselors, a mandatory reporter, yeah. reported. So you get investigations. Well, Stephanie is now nineteen, uh, so she's going to go talk to the investigator, <clears throat> which is actually a prosecutor deputy. She says something about it, and her younger sister is fifteen. She said, "Well, he was doing that to me too." Oh my gosh! So the younger sister goes to um, a CAC. A children's advocacy center talks to a forensic interviewer. It's all videotaped. It's all nice and quiet. And nobody's insinuating that she's done anything wrong or she waited too long to talk or anything or questioning why. Mm-hmm. And Stephanie, she's over there with the big burly deputy prosecutor, and he's interrogating her. You know, what all happened? What didn't you tell? Blah, the 19-year-old. Blah, blah. The 19-year-old. And the 15-year-old's got a CAC. She's got a CAC. Mm-hmm. that's handling her as a victim mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the deputy is like you could mm-hmm. be lying oh my gosh um so stephanie comes out of the prosecutor's office feeling dirty and trashed mm-hmm. and her younger sister 
leaves the CA saying she feels like somebody finally believes me. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to carry this burden anymore. Uh, and, and do they take them out of the home after that? Um, yeah, the, if sec, right. That's the standard procedure. Sexual, yeah. They, I don't know they that take sometimes them, taking them and putting mm-hmm. them in another home is not just because you hear about foster well, parents doing the same I, thing. I won't go. I, I'm not well briefed on all the procedures of uh, the police. Or if the child's in imminent danger, they're going to make an immediate mm-hmm. decision. They they may arrest. And but Did, the child cannot take the man out of the home. The well, it, it can be moms. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why do mothers and I, grandmothers <clears throat> close a blind eye to that? Because that's, I think, almost everybody I know that's been molested, which is one in three women, or I think it used to be. I don't know if it's still that. Is it? She, you're nodding. Well, it, the <clears throat> the numbers had varied from one to four on the on females before they're 18 shall have suffered sexual abuse mm-hmm. of some sort, and then uh, one in six boys by the time they're 18. Mm-hmm shall have suffered likewise sexual is the biggie mm -hmm. on the abuse um is the sexual and the sexual is really hard uh on uh state agent people to talk about nationally it's um 72 well i i'm sorry here in arkansas 72 percent is sexual abuse uh physical is 14 percent wow and then and the other, uh, as I far guess as mental in the well there there is emotional mm-hmm. abuse mm-hmm. Uh, that comes into why do, play why do the parent mothers not not stand up for their children is it usually because they're abused is it because they're afraid men of, don't always stand up for the children no i mean why is the person in the room why is the other parent in the house allowing this sort of abuse to go on they may or may not know about it is that true they play it is true uh, they may or may not know about it, or if they do, they may be in such a situation, economic situation, or they may be victims themselves. Oh, I see. And uh, I had a friend of mine, a 65-year-old man, tell me just the other day that I have known for 40 years about the sexual abuse that went on in his household. Mm-hmm. Not to him, but to his brothers and sisters that he did not mm-hmm. find out till he was a 50-year-old man. Mm-hmm. And how yeah. how... They're, how it, it was the fact that their mother didn't stand up f- for for them that hurt them almost more than the sexual abuse from their father right right because silence is condoning silence is cooperating it, that was almost a um, bigger deal it but there's all kinds of situations and um i there's another issue about chronic abuse <clears throat> chronic abuse will actually shut down the brain oh signal to your adrenal glands uh-huh to kick it into gear uh-huh. uh, or you can go into kind of a frozen state so so chronic abuse shuts down the alarm system <clears throat> so you to the world you appear that you're complacent and going along with it but you're really not things mm-hmm. are frozen up mm-hmm. and you're not in a normal state Will you come back and talk response. some more about that our hours absolutely up. i want to talk more about music i want to talk you're so much fun oh and there's musology to. using music to teach algebra oh my god okay you're i just back. we just got it started in the little rock schools six and months. it's sparking off six months oh i don't have that long. can we do it tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> okay this is for you it's oh. an arkansas u.s flag and georgia desk set that's well that's from your home 
oh, for you to put sweet. on your disc. Um, I'll send it. I'll take a picture and send it home to my siblings. Oh, there you go. Great. I love it. Um, thank you so much, Susan, for coming thank on. You. I really enjoyed talking with you. I want to say thank you to everybody, to my listeners. If you have a great entrepreneurial story that you'd like to share, send a brief bio or your contact info to Kiri at flagandbanner.com. Uh, to all, thank you for spending time with us. We hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. Long before Beyonce sang this song to the Obamas at the inaugural ball, Etta James sang it on the Dreamland Ballroom stage. Located on the top floor of the FlagandBanner.com building in downtown Little Rock, there lies a historical treasure called the Dreamland Ballroom, where musical greats like Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, and Etta James once played. 30 years ago, this magnificent venue was destined for the wrecking ball. But since 2009, the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland has worked to restore this piece of Arkansas heritage. They've made it their mission to bring back its history and culture by providing tours, artistic performances, musical education, and cultural outreach. As you walk to the entrance of Dreamland, you'll notice the paver bricks that are engraved with commemorative names and phrases chosen by donors to Dreamland. The Pave the Way fundraiser is an ongoing project of the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland. Paver bricks are available for you to be a part of this restoration project visit dreamlandballroom.org to find out how you can contribute. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal, to help you live the American dream. 